What's happening in the world coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Floridians are bracing for Hurricane Adalia before it makes landfall with strong winds and a life-threatening storm surge. Officials say water is the biggest danger. As school starts back for many students, experts now say millions of kids still suffer from learning loss after the pandemic. That's despite billions of dollars from the federal government allocated to minimize that problem. Republican candidates are in the spotlight after the recent debate, but what about Democratic candidates? We speak with a reporter who's following RFK Jr.'s campaign trail. Price controls on Medicare medications are in the works. The Biden administration unveils the first 10 drugs up for price negotiations. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Our top news, Idalia is now a Category 1 hurricane heading toward Florida. It may continue to strengthen with life-threatening storm surge at landfall. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says compared to strong winds in these storms, the top killer is actually water. The number one killer in all of these storms is water. Whether it's the storm surge that's going to happen at the coast or the excessive rainfall that might happen inland that causes urban flash flooding, the water is the thing that we are finding that is killing more people in these storms than the wind. You do not have to leave the state. You don't have to drive hundreds of miles. You have to get to higher ground and a safe structure. Uh, you can ride the storm out there, then go back to your home uh, once the storm passes. Governor Ron DeSantis says the state has opened more than 20 shelters with another 20 special needs shelters on standby. More than 5,000 National Guardsmen are on the move. Dozens of school districts will remain closed for two days surrounding the storm. And nearly 70 percent of Florida's counties are now under a state of emergency. Floridians are stocking up on water and gas, as well as weighing down their cars with sandbags. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on how they plan to weather the hurricane. Hurricane Adalia is expected to make landfall in Florida Wednesday morning. Officials are ordering evacuations and urging residents to brace for the storm. Chris Dosal is helping her husband and mother-in-law prepare. Well, we are on our way back from North Carolina because we heard about the storm and we want to help his mother, who's 96 years old, and the rest of our family. They're all going to come to our house and we're going to hunker down and ride out the storm. Tampa residents loaded up their cars with sandbags to prepare for Adalia's arrival. Now we start preparing, putting away all my um, patio furniture, bringing in anything out there that's loose and can fly away. Uh, getting the sandbags. The only tip I would say is with so many more people moving into Florida, if you're planning to get away, you start ahead of time because the traffic, it's no kidding, it's horrible. Dosal says she wants to make sure her family has supplies before they reach Tampa. Um, it was important that we're stopping here in Gainesville because we know once we get to Tampa, there'll be nothing. So that's why we chose Gainesville. We had a dorm meeting and they said everybody out by five today. So it was scrambling to just get everything off the floor. They told us that our dorm building especially is prone to flooding. So we had to pick up everything off the floor and put it in higher places. The National Hurricane Center says Adalia is barreling north from the west tip of Cuba with sustained winds of 80 miles per hour. 
Some 14 million Floridians are under hurricane and tropical storm warnings. Adalia is expected to become a Category 3 hurricane by the time it makes landfall in northern Florida's Big Bend area. I'm feeling fine right now. Obviously, we're on the bad side of it, um, but worst case is flooding right now. Hopefully not too much wind damage. Take it seriously and be prepared. Even though we're not in the cone, or might be in the cone depending on which newscast you listen to, be prepared. Florida's Gulf Coast, southeastern Georgia, and the eastern Carolinas are likely to face torrential rains and potential floods. Winds could reach more than 120 miles per hour. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. New details on what could have started one of the Lahaina wildfires on Maui. According to the Hawaiian Electric Company, power lines that fell during high winds seem to have caused the morning fire on August 8th. But the company says it was not responsible for the afternoon fire. In a response to a lawsuit filed by the county of Maui, the electric company says power lines in West Maui had been off for more than six hours by the time a second afternoon fire began in the Lahaina area. The county alleged the electric company kept the power lines energized despite a fire warning. The electric company says the cause of that afternoon fire has yet to be determined. Meanwhile, officials say 99% of the impact zone in Lahaina has been searched as the death toll stands at 115. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders just endorsed President Biden for a second term. And while the Democratic Party rallies around Biden for the 2024 nomination, another Democratic presidential candidate is generating enthusiasm from voters. That's RFK Jr. Earlier, I spoke to Jeff Lauterbach, an Epic Times reporter covering his campaign. He tells me it's not just Democrats RFK is attracting. Jeff, on the campaign trail, you're seeing a diverse group of voters from across parties flocking to RFK. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, last week I was on a town hall tour uh, covering the RFK Jr. campaign in South Carolina. He stopped, uh, I think, about a, about a half dozen locations. And what was interesting, at each stop, I interviewed dozens of uh, supporters or attendees because some people are supporters and other people are just curious. A lot of people are former Trump supporters from 2016, 2020. A lot of those people said that they like RFK Jr. because of his unity message and because it reminds them of Trump's 2016 campaign where he was considered an outsider with no chance. And what policies are really setting RFK Jr. apart um, from other candidates and resonating with candidates? Well, what's interesting about him is he attracts people from different sides of the political aisle. And some people don't like, like conservatives don't like his pro-choice stance. Liberals don't like his uh, border wall stance. Uh, so those are two pinpointed issues. But people like his unity message again. And then what's really resonating, he's against corporate corruption. He talks a lot about, uh, you know, eliminating corporate corruption and how that impacts the economy. And the economy really affects everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat, independent or Republican, you know, you get every, we all go to the grocery store and we all have our bills and, and that's what's resonating. He's striking a message of restoring the middle class and eliminating corporate or fighting corporate corruption. 
Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You don't see many candidates who kind of uh, straddle the lines like this. Um, now, runner-up in the 2016 Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders has endorsed Joe Biden, saying, quote, he and I share the goal of beating back right-wing extremism. What else has he said about this endorsement? Well, what was interesting about Bernie Sanders is there's speculation mounting, and it's, as you know, been mounting over several months about uh, President Biden's mental fitness, about his age. There's questions within Democratic circles. Can he effectively serve another term? Bernie Sanders' speech in New Hampshire raised some eyebrows because people were thinking that maybe he was going to enter the race. But he unequivocally uh, endorsed President Biden. But at the same time, he questioned the, some economic policies and talked about how the Democratic Party needs to give back to restoring the middle class, which is interesting because that's one of RFK Jr.'s uh, platforms. And you mentioned concerns over Biden's ability to run. Now, we know that Gavin Newsom, uh, or the speculation about a potential Gavin Newsom run, uh, what do we know about this? Well, that's been uh, surfacing in recent uh, weeks and months. Publicly, Gavin Newsom has expressed his support for President Biden. But behind the scenes, there's been several reports he's been doing fundraising around the country. So that's not that's obviously not someone who is just content being the governor of California. On the progressive side, he has a lot of support. And if he runs against Biden, he'll be a credible candidate against Biden and uh, against RFK Jr. Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, thank you for the updates. Thank you. The House Majority Leader has been diagnosed with blood cancer, a common form called multiple myeloma. Representative Steve Scalise said, quote, I am incredibly grateful we were able to detect this early and that this cancer is treatable. The treatment will take months, but the Republican has weathered recovery before. He was injured in a 2017 shooting when a gunman attacked lawmakers outside. Another representative, Democrat Jamie Raskin, is currently in remission for a type of lymphoma. We come back, Nordstrom closes its downtown San Francisco store after 35 years. It follows the trend of stores closing there due to rampant crime and drug use in the area. And photos of juvenile suspects are often kept secret. The North Carolina authorities will soon be able to release some. Find out why in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Schools are still struggling to catch up from learning loss, even now, two years after pandemic-related lockdowns. That's despite getting billions of dollars in funding from the federal government. Between March of 2020 and March of 2021, Congress authorized $190 billion for K-12 schools, about six times what they received from the federal government in a normal year. But Harvard's Center for Education Policy Research says problems remain. It found that the average student lost half a year of learning in math. Some students in some areas fell behind by more than a year and a half in math. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre on Monday said there's still more work to be done to assist schools and partly blamed the Trump administration for the current situation. 
Remember when the president walked in, more than 50% of schools were shut down because of COVID, because the last administration didn't have a plan, didn't have a comprehensive plan to deal with COVID. This comes as President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden visited a Washington, D.C. public middle school Monday. They went to welcome students back for the new school year. The hardest thing is to come back after three months of not doing any work, not doing any homework, and all of a sudden, you've got a lot to make up. Everybody has a lot to catch up from what the, the end of the last year. Jill Biden, a longtime teacher, Meanwhile, the president of PTA at Lincoln High School in San Francisco reflected that during the pandemic, many parents started scrutinizing the public school system. He made the remarks in a newly published episode with the Epic Times' California Insider. Because when the pandemic hit, all the parents could see what their kids were actually being taught because it was all on Zoom. And many, many parents were saying, oh no, what the heck is this? You know, they were very dissatisfied on two fronts. One, that the schools were not open when private schools were open wow. and public schools were closed, but they could see that the quality of the education was not to their standards. You can watch the entire episode of California Insider on EpicTV.com. Senator Chuck Schumer plans to bring together CEOs of tech giants for a discussion on AI. Those on the guest list include Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Schumer has said before he believes AI requires a deliberate approach. He believes this event will help his colleagues to come up to speed on the basic facts of the technology rather than rush to pass legislation. It's scheduled for September 13th in Washington, D.C. Past and present executives from Google will be there, as well as the CEOs of OpenAI and Microsoft. It's the first of nine sessions that Schumer has said will begin this fall. They will discuss regulations on AI and plan to address protections for workers, national security, and copyright concerns. And they will also invite leading members of groups that represent workers in civil rights, art, and entertainment. The Biden administration unveiled the first 10 drugs subject to price negotiations in Medicare, including blood thinners and diabetes medications. Here live is my friend and colleague, NTD Business's Don Ma, how are you today, Don? I'm good, Chris. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Give us the details on this. Yeah, sure. Um, so the blood thinner, Eliquis, and other popular diabetes treatments, uh, including Jardinance and some insulins, are among the first drugs that will be targeted for price negotiations. Now, this is an effort to, to cut Medicare costs. Uh, the medications among the 10 drugs that the administration unveiled, uh, revealed, are, are medications that treat heart disease, uh, certain cancers, and autoimmune disorders. Uh, the medications on the list are taken, taken by millions of older Americans. Enrollees uh, currently spend thousands of dollars on these drugs. And it's costing Medicare some $50 billion annually. So. The move is expected to cut costs for some patients. Uh, consumers in the Medicare program could see savings in 2026. How does the administration have the authority to negotiate drug prices? So the ability to do this was authorized by the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that Democrats pushed through Congress last year. Uh, it was signed into law by Biden um, as well last year. And under the law, the government will negotiate with drug makers the prices of a select number of medicines on, on which it spends the most annually for the Medicare health program. So 
The Medicare agency known as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, it was previously forbidden by law from bartering with manufacturers. Now the law requires that negotiated prices be at least 25% lower than the original list prices. Um, Medicare will publish its list of new prices on September 1st and prices settled on for these first 10 drugs will not go into effect until 2026, about two years and a bit from now. I imagine drug companies are not happy about this. Has there been any pushback against this? Yeah, there's definitely critics of this move. Um, the move is facing uh, litigation from, from the drug makers and heavy criticism from Republican lawmakers. Um, manufacturers are actually hoping to halt the nego negotiation process. They're file filing multiple lawsuits in federal courts across the U.S. Um, they each say that the program is unconstitutional. And here are some of the arguments, Chris. Um, some of them um, say that it violates the first, fifth, and eighth amendments, and that you know you can't give a single government agency the power to you know arbitrarily set the prices of medicines. So you know the potential, potentially, the fate of the entire negotiation plan rests with the courts. Uh, some other arguments um, saying that this program could stifle new innovations in medicine because you're basically trying to reduce drug makers' profits, which uh, a portion of that is used for R&D for new, new innovations. All right. Good to see you as always, Don. Thank you, Chris. Popular retailer Nordstrom is closing its flagship store in downtown San Francisco after 35 years in business. It's the latest business to leave the area. The store once occupied five floors and spanned over 312,000 square feet. It's now closing like many other retailers due to a surge in crime and poor sales. Downtown San Francisco has suffered from a rise in shoplifting, homelessness, and public drug use. The now empty Nordstrom location has been described by local news outlets as desolate with countless empty displays and mannequins packaged up. Other major retailers to leave the area include Old Navy, Whole Foods, AT&T, Anthropology, Amazon Go, Office Depot, and Saks Fifth Avenue. They all closed earlier this summer. Remaining stores have been forced to lock up their stock to deter shoplifters. Authorities will have more power to release the photos of juveniles accused of violent crime in North Carolina. That's after a new law was passed. The state passed the law to counter a surge in violent crime committed by teenagers. The purpose of releasing juvenile suspect photos is the same as releasing the photos of adult suspects. It's so suspects can be located faster. The law allows a judge or the police in some circumstances to publicly release photos of suspects under 19 years old. Those older are treated as adults. The, not, the new law also makes it automatic that if a teenager is indicted with murder before a grand jury, the case will be tried in adult court. Previously, prosecutors could, could decide. The law will take effect December 1st. Electric vehicle maker Tesla is preparing for its first court trial related to the issue of an autopilot fatality. The trial is set for next month and will be a major test of Tesla's autopilot software technology. 
The civil lawsuit alleges that autopilot system caused owner Micah Lee's car to suddenly veer off a highway near L.A. at 65 miles per hour, hit a tree, then burst into flames, killing Lee and his 8-year-old son. The lawsuit alleges Tesla knew that autopilot and other safety systems were defective when it sold the car. Tesla denied liability for the accident and blamed driver error. It said in court documents that drivers must pay attention to the road and keep their hands on the steering wheel. Tesla faces another autopilot fatality lawsuit in October and numerous others involving non-fatal injuries. New York City's Madison Square Garden may get its shortest lease in history. Two city council panels approved a special five-year permit for the garden to continue operation. That's half of its current lease limit. The full city council is expected to approve it in mid-September. Then the mayor has to sign on or veto it. James Dolan, whose family owns the garden, wants an operating permit that never expires. The garden sits atop Penn Station. Councilman Eric Botcher says the short permit will push Dolan to work with the Metropolitan Transportation Authority on a deal for updating and modernizing the station. MSG Entertainment says the committees did a grave disservice to New Yorkers. It called it a short-sighted move that will further contribute to the erosion of the city. Walt Disney Pictures visual effects crews has filed for an election to unionize, more than 80% of Disney's in-house visual effects crew members reportedly signed authorization cards. The workers are behind some of Disney's biggest hits, including the live-action adaptations of The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. In the elections, turnout in favor of unionizing, the studio will be obligated to hold good-faith negotiations. Just weeks earlier, Marvel Studios' VFX crews also moved to unionize. The Marvel and Disney filings are the first for visual effects professionals. This comes as industries throughout Hollywood are demanding improved labor conditions. Hollywood productions have screeched to a halt since the Writers Guild of America announced a streak strike in May, followed by members of SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union, going on strike in July. Amazon is raising its free shipping minimum for some non-Prime members. To qualify for free shipping, non-Prime members typically have to purchase an order totaling at least $25. But on Monday, the company said it has raised that minimum to $35. An Amazon spokesperson described the higher $35 threshold as a test. The trial with the higher fee is being carried out for regions based on zip code, meaning all customers in a given region We'll see the new policy applied to their orders. Amazon said changing the free shipping threshold could drive more consumers to pay the roughly $140 annual fee to join its prime service. After the break, has the Chinese government been interfering with the Texas legislature? We, we hear from an Epic Times reporter who obtained an exclusive unclassified military document. And does China's East fast fashion giant Xi'an use forced labor? That's what 16 Republican Attorney General are asking the SEC to find out before the company's potential initial public offering. Back to the news. 
information warfare. That's what the Air Force is accusing the Chinese government of. An unclassified military document obtained by Epoch Times reporter Darlene Sanchez says the CCP interfered with the legislative process surrounding Texas State Senate Bill 147. The bill would bar certain entities from China and other countries listed on the National Threat Assessment from purchasing land in Texas. We speak with Sanchez about her findings. Darlene Sanchez, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Darlene, there's a U.S. military report that says that the CCP conducted a, quote, misinformation campaign to kill Texas Senate Bill 147. Tell us about this report. Well, this report um, came about from a source of mine that um, was an attorney in the um, U.S. military. And um, this report basically was talking about a misinformation campaign that China launched through uh, the CCP-owned app uh, WeChat. So the Chinese Communist Party basically dominates that app. They've created it, you know, as kind of like their answer to our Facebook and, and Twitter. So it is totally controlled by them. And they use that to uh, try to undermine, um, you know, laws in different states and, of course, in the United States as well. How so? What did they specifically do with WeChat? In this situation, this bill was to actually stop uh, Chinese nationals, uh, Chinese uh, countries and businesses that are owned by the Chinese Communist Party or those affiliated with it from buying land, um, especially land near uh, U.S. Air Force bases or military bases here in Texas. So what they did then was they tried to organize a campaign against this bill and uh, they were pretty successful. What did that look like? How did they use the app to actually organize a campaign? Yes. So what this military document, it was an un, it became an unclassified document. And what it, what it said was that they went on to WeChat. They would um, basically try to get people to, um, you know, form other types of chats and to denounce the bill, to call it um, anti-Chinese, to call it racist, uh, discriminatory. And so by doing that, they got attention of other groups that weren't necessarily, um, you know, involved with the CCP, but that started kind of like an avalanche of people um, out in the public, for example, Chinese Americans, that might think that this bill was simply about discrimination, when in fact it was about national security. So tell us more a bit about that. The, the report specifically mentions the Democratic Party, what did it say about them? Yes, it mentioned um, two uh, Democrats and the Democratic Party, you're right, that some of these individuals got involved in this. Well, um, for example, there is a state senator um, here in Texas, Senator Wu. He felt it was discriminatory, you know. Um, he's from Houston area. Um, he wasn't against, you know, he came out publicly and said, I'm not against, um, you know, protecting national security. But he felt like the bill targeted um, a particular, you know, aspect of society or a particular population um, in the area. And so that's why he came out against it. And we know this bill was ultimately shot down. What happened? Well, that's interesting. And, you know, there are some questions about that. Um, 
it, this bill passed the Senate. It went into um, the House, into a committee, and it really never moved from that committee. And that was a Republican-controlled committee. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, speculation swirling around that. You know, what did really happen? I tried to contact um, the chairman of that particular committee, the Republican committee, and I was not able to get through. And I know other media also tried to contact, um, you know, this Republican um, House member, and I do not see anything. I have not seen anything, any response from him whatsoever. Fascinating. Epic Times reporter Darlene Sanchez, thank you. Thank you so much. China's fast fashion giant Xi'an is back in the spotlight. 16 U.S. states have asked the SEC to audit the retailer's supply chain ahead of its potential initial public offering. The China-founded company has been accused of using forced labor. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Republican attorneys general from 16 states asked the SEC for the audit of Xi'an in a letter last week. They urged the SEC to ensure Xi'an and other foreign companies listed on U.S. exchanges verify through independent audits that they comply with U.S. laws that prohibit imports made with any forced labor. Xi'an, which sells $7 dresses and $5 home goods in more than 150 countries, recently moved its headquarters to Singapore. But most of its business operations, including factories and warehouses, remain in China. Pressure on the fast fashion giant is mounting as China hawks in Congress target Chinese firms not aligned with U.S. foreign policy goals. Reuters, citing anonymous sources, reported last month that Xi'an was working with at least three investment banks on a potential U.S. initial public offering and had been in talks with the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq. Xi'an has previously said it does not plan to IPO this year and has zero tolerance for forced labor. Two dozen U.S. representatives sent a similar letter to the SEC in May, asking for it to halt a potential Xi'an IPO until the company confirmed that it does not use forced labor. Accusations against the company include criminal use of cotton from the Xinjiang region where genocide against the Uyghur minority group is ongoing, forced labor, intellectual property theft from independent designers, and a production process that contributes to pollution. A 2022 undercover documentary by the UK's Channel 4 found Xi'an factory employees working up to 18 hours a day with just one day off every month and earning next to nothing. The retailer has been able to rapidly expand in the U.S. despite concerns over its labor practices and sustainability. The China-founded fast fashion retailer opened a warehouse in Indiana in 2022 to expedite deliveries and meet rising demand. It reportedly expanded by 20% this month to nearly 1.8 million square feet. Indiana's Republican Attorney General Todd Rokita did not sign the letter. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, ex-U.S. Marine Paul Whelan makes an appearance in a rare video from a Russian prison. He's serving a 16-year sentence after Russia accused him of spying. Vandalism and theft are skyrocketing in Argentina, so much so that shopkeepers are afraid to open their doors. And prolonged economic crisis is turning books into a luxury in Venezuela. And the whole industry is struggling, more shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Hurricane Adalia is on track to hit Florida tomorrow. Residents are readying supplies and filling cars with sandbags. Officials warn that surging water could cause more damage than strong winds. 
Schools are grappling with learning lost two years after the pandemic lockdowns. That's despite billions of dollars in federal help. Experts say parents are scrutinizing the quality of education. The Biden administration named the first 10 drugs for Medicare price negotiations. Among them are blood thinners and diabetes medications. Consumers in the Medicare program could see savings after three years, but it's not without detractors. A rare new video has emerged showing detained American Paul Whelan inside his prison camp. The former U.S. Marine has been held in Russia for over four years. He was kept in a remote prison some 200 miles southeast of Moscow. Dressed in the black prison's black uniform and matching hat, Whelan appears in various locations with other inmates sewing using a sewing machine and while at the cafeteria. In the video, Whelan tells the Russian to Russia's Today reporter that he will not answer his questions. So you understand when I say that I can't do an interview, which means I can't answer any questions. Well, just a woman. It's not an interview. I think that's just a plan. If you're asking me questions, well, that's an interview. If you don't only ask me your questions, I could just keep you just talk. It'd be final that? No, I can't do an interview. Whalen was attained in 2018 and is serving a 16-year sentence for espionage. Whalen and Washington deny he spied in Russia. U.S. officials have said that Washington presented a serious proposal to Moscow to try to get Whalen out. In a recent prisoner swap, the U.S. released a Russian arms dealer for a WNBA player held in Russia on drug charges. The U.N.'s Children's Fund says more than 1,300 schools have been totally destroyed in Ukraine since Russia's 2022 invasion, and others have been badly damaged. UNICEF says persistent attacks mean that only about a third of school-aged children are attending classes fully in person. Many are forgetting what they learned. Around half of Ukraine's teachers have reported a deterioration in students' abilities in language, reading, and mathematics. UNICEF also says that even outside Ukraine, more than half the children whose families fled to other countries are not enrolled in national education, citing language barriers and overstretched education systems. The war followed COVID disruptions, meaning some Ukrainian children are facing a fourth consecutive school year of disruptions as they try to return to classes this week. In Argentina, theft and robberies are making shopkeepers afraid to open their doors. Officials say more than 100 people have been detained. What's behind the crisis? CCTV video obtained by Reuters showed the moment suspects in Argentina ran away from a clothing store they had allegedly looted. A recent wave of reported vandalism and theft like this around Argentina has led to dozens of arrests and sparked fear among shopkeepers hesitant to open their businesses. The cause is unclear, but there are signs of increasing volatility from the country's inflation shooting up over 100 percent, stoking a cost-of-living crisis, as well as a tense race to general elections in October. The owner of this mobile phone store in the capital, Buenos Aires, said he was afraid to open, but he had little choice. The looters get off the bus out of the blue. You don't even expect them and get in and take you by surprise. You don't have time for anything. One takes the precautions he considers are more suited for himself. There are people who say it's better to shut down until the storm passes. 
But if the looting started now, at the end of August, without even getting to December, I don't want to even imagine what will happen in December. The thing is that if I don't open the store, I don't eat. Authorities said more than 100 people have been detained in different parts of Argentina. Police officers were mobilized to guard shops. Security Minister Anibal Fernandez alleged that the looting was coordinated, saying that these events were not spontaneous and not a coincidence. While Argentine President Alberto Fernandez called on the public not to resort to violence. Argentina is grappling with annual inflation that now sits at 113 percent, and J.P. Morgan estimates it could hit an eye-watering 190 percent by the end of the year. A recent sharp devaluation of its currency has made things more expensive, and it's all ratcheting up an already ugly three-way race for the presidency, currently led by radical libertarian Javier Millet, who has ridden a wave of voter anger over inflation and hardship. He's pledged to dollarize the economy and get rid of Argentina's central bank. The International Monetary Fund approved a $7.5 billion disbursement for Argentina. The country has been the IMF's largest debtor after years of economic crisis. Argentina's government hopes the new cash will help stabilize the country, with elections just around the corner. The economic crisis in Venezuela is rippling through a new sector, the book industry. Publishers and bookstores are trying to weather the storm by selling used textbooks and a handful of new books. Here's more. A long economic crisis and sky-high inflation have made it hard for Venezuelans to afford the basics and turning books into a luxury. Even paper for printing is now expensive, hurting publishers. And import restrictions make bringing in foreign titles difficult. Many bookshops in the capital Caracas now have limited offerings, mostly secondhand, and customers are scarce. Ramuyo Castellanos runs a bookstore in the north of the capital. The wonder of La Pulperia is that we work with used books. Papers cost is high and printing here in Venezuela has become a hard slope. Today we are seeking to talk to the state so that the cost of paper can lower to import it so that we can print again and the publishers that left come back to Venezuela. A decade ago, the country's bookseller and publisher guild had 110 members. Now that number has dwindled to 25, according to its president, Julio Masparote. He says that the problem is due to a general economic crisis and drop of GDP of over 80 percent, and that the book industry was devastated by it, adding that what little money people make is spent on food. To cut costs more than a decade ago, Venezuela's education ministry said public schools could no longer use textbooks produced by private publishers. That hammered textbook publishers such as Masparote. Printing those books had represented some 80 percent of their business. And the textbook scarcity worsened. The government had not printed any since 2018. Though economic activity enjoyed a slight recovery in 2021 and 2022 as the government eased currency controls, the respite was brief with inflation reaching 398% year-on-year in July. We have footage of dramatic drug busts. The Mexican Navy seized over four tons of cocaine during two high-speed chases at sea. The two separate operations occurred last Tuesday and Wednesday in the Pacific Ocean. The Navy also found over 1,300 gallons of fuel and detained 11 people. The detainees were handed over to the prosecutor's office. Coming up, what could be in a time capsule from more than 200 years ago? 
Experts from the West Point unravel the mystery. Wrestlers in the UK wearing fancy costumes and scuffling in gravy. We have more on the unique World Gravy Wrestling Championships. And Bosnian City opens a new attraction. Visitors gaze at the valley's breathtaking views as they walk high above the ground. We'll be back with more here soon on NTD News. Thanks for staying with us. Next, we'll take a look at a range of entertaining events. First, let's find out what's inside a nearly 200-year-old time capsule. Officials from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, unveiled an, and opened the lead box during a ceremony. But to the dismay of the audience and historians present, the box appeared to be empty except for silt. One archaeologist says moisture may have disintegrated any organic matter inside, like paper or wood. Well, that, what I was thinking uh, when I saw the, the silt, the silt had settled in the bottom of the box, and so it kind of had the appearance of a, a ceramic or something like that, but when I touched it, it fell apart, so I knew right away that it was not a ceramic. It was mud or silt or, or dirt like that. So. The time capsule was found in May at the base of a monument at West Point. It might date back to the original installation of the monument in 1829. The Academy plans to place a new time capsule into the rebuilt monument base next year. And over in the UK, wrestlers participated in a peculiar type of fundraising activity, the World Gravy Wrestling Championships. I'm here at the Rosen Bowl, ready for some gravy wrestling. We're gonna get down, we're gonna get dirty. World Gravy Wrestling, baby! The event goes back 15 years. Wrestlers donned themselves in fancy dress and battled in a gravy-filled pool. Participants had to wrestle in the gravy for two minutes before they were hosed off by firefighters afterwards. The proceeds will go to a local hospice, which supports people with life-limiting illnesses. Breathtaking views of a Bosnian valley from a skywalk high above the ground. The city prides itself on the brand new attraction to draw tourists. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the Balkan nation's first skywalk. This U-shaped glass bridge extends 115 feet over the hilly city of Mostar. The valley's breathtaking views captivate visitors as they walk. It's a great addition because you can get the most fantastic view of, of the valley. Um, and there's you know so much to see, so much history. You can see all the different neighborhoods and all the different uh, landscape. It's, it's fantastic, so I think it's a, a great addition. Celine Andreviv is a Bosnian visitor traveling from Belgium. It is superb, but really high. The view is fabulous. The walk is a bit stressful, a bit scary, but the view is very pretty anyway. Her husband says the view of the city is worth overcoming a fear of heights. I am a bit afraid of heights, but my wife encouraged me, so I managed slowly, step by step. The view is gorgeous. You can see the entire city. Mastar's tourism board is happy to offer something new to visitors following the pandemic. We feel a change in the atmosphere after the two pandemic years. All of our destinations are feeling the relaxation in terms of the tourist arrivals and the behavior tourists, who in addition to visiting traditional sites in Mostar and wider Herzegovina region, 
also want to spend more on outdoor activities. In the valley below, the cobbled streets of the historic city are packed with visitors. Tourists enjoy the summer sun and take in the sights. We are proud of what grew out of our idea, and we see it as proof that enthusiasm brings results if you are persistent. You must persist because nothing happens overnight. We continue to invest in this site, we volunteer here, and we recruit other volunteers. Mustar's old bridge also continues to be one of the city's main attractions. Jumping from the bridge has long been a rite of passage for the region's youth. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.